the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Last time that we met, two weeks ago, we spent a good deal of time, actually most of the time we were together that Wednesday night, uh, discussing the issue of mikvah. I hope that was somewhat informative and helpful for you. I'm still not certain that we know exactly what uh, Yochanan, John, the, the baptizer, we would call him Yochanan Hamadbil, exactly what he was doing, but no one seemed to question him. I mean, it wasn't, there, there wasn't, there aren't notices that saying, yeah, there's this guy that's kind of half there out in the desert dunking everybody in the water. Um, no one seemed to be amazed that he was doing that. Uh, many were going out to him. Many were uh, uh, listening to his message and following his instructions to do a mikvah in the Jordan River in preparation of the coming kingdom. And so uh, what eventually became Christian baptism in the, in the second and third centuries is clearly connected to what John was doing, but it was far different. Um, it probably had, it probably began with similar reasons. Um, that is an, an initiation, a coming into something. Uh, we know that the, as we studied, I'm recapping just a little bit, uh, the last thing that happened with a person who was becoming a proselyte to Judaism was that he or she went through a mikvah. And the thing about the mikvah was is that it, it was far more universal. That is, it was less tied to gender. Circumcision, of course, was the sign of the covenant, but it was tied to gender. And from, from all of the uh, sources that we have, it seems that there were far more women proselytes than there were men. It was probably easier for a woman to be a proselyte than it was for a man. And of all of the things that uh, were required of a proselyte, the, the only outward ceremony that would distinguish the person as moving from being an outsider to an insider was the mikvah. And that was equally true for a man or for a woman. So you can understand why it became perhaps the, uh, the initiation uh, ritual or ceremony for entering into the people of the way. Uh, the people of the way were a sect of, of Judaism. And so uh, the question, of course, was why wasn't circumcision required? And we know that circumcision uh, was considered at the time far more a badge of ethnicity than it was uh, an issue of covenant membership. In other words, covenant membership was based upon ethnicity. But um, that didn't have anything to do with a mikvah. A mikvah, you could take a mikvah if you were a Gentile. And taking a mikvah by itself did not, did not change your, uh, your ethnicity. So this whole issue of how do you get in to the people of God was a primary primary point for the apostles. And that was because there was the prevailing theology that you got in by being born a Jew, or if you were Gentile, by becoming a Jew. And the message of the gospel was that membership in God's community or God's covenant had, it was not based upon your lineage. Uh, that was the message of the gospel you know, from the beginning, but it had been lost or uh, had been neglected. And when Yeshua came, he reiterated this most fundamental and important issue, and that was, I I ask this numbers of times when I teach, how do you get into God's family? Okay, you're adopted, but, yeah, well, that's the right answer. Yeah, you must have. Most people say by faith. And and that's true in, in one obvious sense but that's not the first step <laughs> in other words i you have not chosen me but i have chosen you is is the issue of covenant membership and god's uh god's choice is one of the themes that the apostles continue to come down on when it comes to being uh part of god's family and adoption is that is that uh, metaphor uh where the uh the parents choose the, the children and that's the issue of adoption. Well, so there's John, Yochanan Hamat Bil, and he's down 
um, at the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea, and he's preaching. And in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, if, you're, if you have uh, pages, if you uh, have your pages, you can turn to page 82. Yes. Well, it, uh, the question is, is grafted in and adoption the same? Yeah, it was two different, obviously, metaphors uh, wanting to emphasize two different maybe aspects or, or central points. But, um, yeah, t- clearly, uh, grafted in means you become, you get in. I think the biggest question of the first century was how do you get in? And the second biggest question is how do you stay in? Yeah. No, I mean, is the, how do you get in and how do you stay in? In other words, if the covenant that God made is the means by which one has blessing from God. Now, I mean, we can say surely that God has a, a very wide blessing. I mean, uh, he blesses the uh, he sends the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Right. I mean, there's a sense there's there's an, uh, an essential benevolence of God to all of his creatures. God is benevolent to all his creation. In that sense that he provides for them, gives them life, so forth and so on. However, when it comes to a father-son relationship or a husband-wife relationship, that relationship is exclusive. I can remember in the early uh, years of, of my studies in college taking Philosophy 101, and we learned this principle of exclusivity. Uh, in other words, there are certain things that are better when a lot of people participate. For instance, when a comedian gives a joke, if only one person laughs, it's not so good as if everybody laughs, right? There are other things that are diminished if too many people participate. And one of those is, is the whole issue of intimate relationship. There's a, there's, a one-to-one, there's a one-to-one correspondence that is marred if a third party, you know, three's a crowd, Right? So uh, the marriage relationship, for instance, is an exclusive relationship, and it gains its, its, gains its highest good by its exclusivity. Well, the relationship that God has with his people is one of exclusivity. That, that, doesn't, that is not politically correct. It's not religiously politically correct, but it's clearly what the, what the scriptures say. Amos 3.2, speaking of Israel, you only have I chosen of all the nations of the earth. And the reason that, the reason that uh, God casts the covenant in the metaphor of marriage is for that very reason, or shall we put it the other way around, which the way Paul puts it, marriage was, was made in such a way as to demonstrate that, ex, that exclusive relationship between God and his people. Uh, that doesn't make his people better than all the rest, because he, he makes it very clear he didn't choose the best. He chose the, the lowly, he chose the poor, he chose the broken. He, those are the ones that he chose in order to... Uh, display his glory and his grace. So, you know, there's no place for pride in this issue of God's having chosen, which is something that, you know, is a natural tendency within humankind, and that is to be proud that you're in. But you didn't get in on your own anything you did. You got in because God desired you to be in. And so that's the, that's the point I was making, with, and you correctly said adoption. That's the first step, is God choosing us so that we should be his. And from that point on, it's his divine work to bring us in and to, to knit us together into the family of God, to use Paul's expression. Um, and so that is demonstrated in the first century by the mikvah. And it's undoubtedly true that I would think that that's why Yeshua ends our gospel that we're studying with, go make disciples of all the nations and have them do a mikvah in the name of the Father, the Son, and, and the Spirit. So this covenant, with, this covenant that we come into is between us and God. That's why we do a mikvah in his name. And the, uh, it seems most likely that John was at the Jordan calling people, uh, not only from the Jordan, but in his life, he was calling people to say, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so you need, to, you need to cleanse yourself. You need to prepare yourself. You need to ready yourself. And the way that you did that in, in ancient Judaism was to have a mikvah. You know, a bridegroom did a mikvah. A bride did a mikvah. Uh, uh, anyone who was unclean did a mikvah before they became ceremonially clean again. It was the common ritual of preparing yourself to do something important. And then, undoubtedly, that's what uh, Yochanan Hamad Bil was doing.
So we, we read these words and it becomes, it's commonplace to us. We've heard it so many times, some of us. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet when we're asked to describe what the kingdom of God is, we're not sure. Right? I mean, many of us, you know, even those of us that may have grown up in religious studies and whatever, when asked what the kingdom of God is, you get all kinds of answers. And so we're going to take another one of those uh, <laughs> those rabbit trails and, and ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God? Now, as, as I mentioned before, Matthew uses a unique term, kingdom of heaven. That's, he's the only one that uses it. Nobody else uses it. What, what would that mean for us? I think most of us know what that means. But uh, turn to page 82 and let's look at the notes here. So these are the first words that we hear from John. A call for repentance in light of the soon coming of the kingdom of heaven. Repentance, which is metanoeo, metanoeo uh, in the Greek, is conveyed by the Hebrew verb shuv, which means to turn or to return in the Tanakh. Now, there's another word in Tanakh which also means to repent, and that's nacham. And in the nifal uh, stem, it means to regret or to relent. And it's used most often of God, believe it or not, which has caused some, some theological difficulty. I mean, in the one place, God says, I am not a man that I should repent, or the son of man that I should lie. And yet, how many times do we have, in, you know, when Moshe goes up to the mountain, and God says to Moshe, look, Look at these Israelites. Look what they've done. Let me destroy them all, and I'll start over with you. And Moses says, no, that, you can do that. Because the nations would say that you were, you were without power. Your name would be defamed in the earth because you brought them out of Egypt. And then, look, they would be destroyed. And then what does it say? So God repented, or God relented, or however you want to say it. Well, I don't mean to get into that theological conundrum tonight, um, only just to say that, and the rabbis, I think, are right on this, the sages are right on this, that in this case, the Torah speaks in the language of men. In other words, we talk about God as, that, as though he is like us so that we can understand him, all the while knowing that he's not like us. Right? When he smiles, what does he do in the Hebrew? He lifts his face. That's how you say to smile. How do you say to frown? When your face has fallen. You know, he says to Cain, why is your countenance, why is your face fallen? It means, why are you frowning? And when the high priest says uh, the blessing upon Israel, he says, may he cause his face to, his countenance to rise upon you. What does that mean? Smile. So, does God have a face? Well, not really, because God is without... Uh, Substance in terms of material substance. God is a spirit. And yet, we read that Moses spoke to him, what? Face to face. So, we have to speak about God in terms that we can understand because though those are the categories in which we think. And I would suggest that that's what's happening when we see, when we read in the, in the Tanakh that God relents. But at, at any rate, the import of Shuv in conveying repentance is, first of all, that it's turning from evil. And secondly, turning toward God, which means, number one, admitting one's wrongdoing, that is confession. And, and secondly, accepting God's standard of righteousness. And thirdly, forsaking the sin. And then finally, adhering to new conduct. I mean, those, maybe I've broken it down into too many steps psychologically, but I think that's what, what really happens when you see the stories of repentance in the, in the scriptures, this is what happens. You know, a lot of us don't want to, naturally as mankind, we don't want to agree with God's standard of righteousness. Say, oh yeah, okay, I, I did wrong, I messed up. Here, I'll fix it. You know, it reminds me of when the, you know, at Kadesh Barnea, the, the uh, scouts came back and said, oh, it's a wonderful land full of, Wonderful produce and so forth and so on. But there's a couple big problems. Number one is there's a lot of uh, uh, walled cities and they're very highly fortified. And secondly is there's the giants, these big warriors there, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight, right? And only two said, Joshua and Caleb said, come on, let's go up. God will give us the land. You remember the story. So after God said, okay, this is the way you're going to not trust me because I told you if you went up, I would give you the victory. But now you're not trusting me, so you're going to wander in the wilderness. Then what did they do? 
They said, oh, we're so sorry. He said, and God told them through Moshe, don't go up against the cities. What did they do? They went up against the city. You see, just because you say, I've done wrong, isn't enough. The next thing you have to say is, God's standard is my standard. I will accept his standard. Instead of making my own standard for what to do next. And we're very good. All of us are very good at that, right? We're all good at rationalizing a standard that we think we can we can uh, measure up to in terms of repentance. Uh, so accepting God's standards and then forsaking the sin. I mean, really turning your back on it. In fact, that's what shuv means, to turn around, to go the other direction, right? And adhering to new conduct, to doing what is right. I'm not saying that's easy, especially for habitual sins, especially for things that we're uh, used to doing. That's what shuv means. So when uh, Yochanan was saying, repent, Repent from what? I mean, he's talking to Pharisees. Right? I mean, these people are supposed to be the most meticulous about each one of the mitzvot. And he's telling them to repent. You know, that's always the problem with a prophet. That's why a prophet is not liked in his own country, in his own city. Because he comes into very religious, righteous people and tells them to repent. You know, especially leaders. Comes to leaders and says, <laughs> repent. So, uh, but that was his message. Repent, turn around, go the other way. In the Septuagint, the Greek metanaeo, which is the Greek word found in our verse, which literally means to change one's mind or thinking. Can you see the difference in the Greek way of looking at repentance than in the Hebrew way? No, I'm not saying that, that the writers of the apostolic scriptures accepted the Greek perspective by using the Greek language. No, they understood that or they hoped you understood that when they said, change your mind, they meant, turn around, go the other direction, you know, do the things that the Tanakh said. But from a Greek perspective, repentance happens in the brain. From a Hebrew perspective, repentance happens in your feet. And there, there's quite a difference there. Well, in the Septuagint, this word is, uh, is found, it usually translates nacham, to regret, and only one time translates shuv. So it wasn't the common... It wasn't the common word in the Septuagint uh, for this idea of shuv, of turning. But by the time of the first century, shuv had become the common verb meaning to repent. And the noun teshuvah, uh, which was coined by the sages, not found in the Tanakh, had become the commonly used word for repentance. We see this clearly in rabbinic literature. By the way, if you, want, if you just uh, start studying repentance in the rabbinic literature, there's a ton of it. I mean, it's a huge, huge theme in the rabbinic literature. I've given you a few samplings. Be not like the fools who, when they sin, bring an offering but do not repent. They know not the difference between good and evil and yet venture to make an offering to God. So the point is, if you've done something wrong and you know you're supposed to bring an offering, it's worthless bringing the offering unless you've repented of your sin. Does that remind you of something Yeshua said? You know, if you come bearing your offering and you realize that your brother has something against you, go get it straight. Leave your offering, go get it straight, come back. In other words, offering, giving an offering when you know that there was unresolved sin in your life. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I'm quite certain that what he was talking about there was that your brother has a legitimate offense against you and you've not done anything about it. It's not that your brother doesn't like the way you wear your hair or doesn't like the fact that you keep Sabbath. or that, that, That's not the things that we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, you promised to pay back a debt by such and such a date. You didn't pay it back. And he came and talked to you and you told him to go take a hike. And now you're going to go up to the, to, to the temple and give your offering. Yeshua says, no, <laughs> leave your offering. Go get things straight with your brother, then come back. Uh, that, was from, uh, that was from the Talmud, Birchot. Uh, the next is from Midrash Rabbah, uh, Leviticus. And Cain went out. It's a comment on Genesis 4.16. On his way, Cain met Adam, who said to him, What has happened as regards the judgment passed upon you? Because uh, Cain had go, gone to meet in this Midrash. Cain had gone to meet with God after having uh, killed his brother. Cain replied, I repented, and I am pardoned. When Adam heard that, he smote his face and said, Is the power of repentance as great as that? I did not know it was so. So, in the Midrash, they even say Cain could have repented. I mean, they don't say that he actually did, but they're telling the story saying it would have been possible. Had he repented, God would have pardoned him, even for murder. 
If a man were to come and say that God does not receive the penitent, Manasseh would come and testify against him. For there was never a man more wicked than he, and yet in the hour of his repentance God received him. As it is said, he prayed unto God, and God entreated him, or God received him. Who is a penitent man? Rabbi Yehuda said, The man who, when the same opportunity for sin occurs once or twice, refrains from sinning. He added, The same woman, the same season, the same place. You understand what he's saying? Okay, you sin. And you repent of that sin. And then you're confronted with exactly the same temptation at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. If your repentance was true, you turn around. You go away. And if your repentance was false, you go back to your own way. As Yeshua said, a dog returns to his vomit. So repentance has to be a change of life, not just a change of thinking. Rabbi Yehuda, uh, Yehuda Nasiya said in the name of Rabbi Yehuda HaShimon, If a man shoots an arrow, it may reach one field's length or two. But greater is the power of repentance, for it reaches unto the throne of glory. Sin offering and guilt offering and death and the atonement, a day of atonement, all of them together do not expiate sin without repentance. You see, and by the way, that, that was from the Tosefta, Tosefta Yoma on the tractate on uh, Yom Kippur. The idea that the sages thought you could just go through the motions, that's ridiculous. If you read the sages, they said, no, no, no. If you go through the motions, it doesn't help you one bit unless there's something uh, going that's real gone on in your heart. Uh, when you read the sages and you read the words of Yeshua, they resonate very close together. Now, in some cases, they're very far apart. But in many cases, they're very close together. Next page. God says, my hands are stretched out towards the penitent. I reject no creature who gives me his heart in penitence. Therefore, it says, peace, peace to the far and to the near. To all who draw near to me, I draw near and I heal them. Now, you see, you see the problem? This is Midrash Psalms, somewhat later, but it may reflect a, an earlier perspective. You see, the, the, the sages were very, uh, very good at saying these wonderful things about repentance. What they didn't realize is that there, were gonna come, there was going to come a time when so many Gentiles repented. That was the rub. When you've already taught that God will receive any man that repents, and you didn't think in the... I mean, who? what Gentile would want to join them? Come on. You know, the Jews are, are persecuted. They're, they're laughed at. You would never think that... The, and then all of a sudden, thousands come in. All of a sudden, they want to worship the God of Israel. And so, um, they should have stuck with... They, they should have... Maintained that repentance is, is, is valid for the acceptance of anyone. Of course, they didn't. Then that became an issue of how you get in and how you stay in. Rabbi Shimon says, if a man was righteous his entire life, but at the end he rebelled, he loses the whole, since it is said, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. If a man was evil his entire life, but at the end he repented, the omnipresent accepts him, as it is said, and as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. You know, I, I remember uh, watching a debate. I don't remember who it was between. I think it was between uh, Shmuley Boteach and uh, Brown, Michael Brown. At any rate, someone in the, in the audience uh, said to Michael Brown, do you actually mean to tell me that my grandfather, who was a Torah observant uh, Jewish man who was slaughtered at Auschwitz, uh, be, even though he, because he didn't confess your Yeshua, uh, he, he's, he's turned away from God. And then you take some, some terrible sinner, and on his deathbed, he says yes to God and, 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 and receives, you know, Jesus, the way this person would say it, that, he's, that God accepts him? Well, that's exactly what Rabbi Shimon says. It's not just what, it's just not what Yeshua said. It was the sages who said that. And I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, uh, that's exactly right. Because salvation is not by our works. Salvation is not by our righteousness. Salvation is not what we do. Salvation is a gift from God. And he can, he can pay the workers the same if he hires them at the beginning of the day or if he hires them at the end of the day. He has the right to do that. He is the king. Now, that doesn't 
make it any less troublesome in my mind, uh, the, the scenario that's put forward, but, but I leave that in God's hands. All right. So, at least, at least we see, at least we see that repentance was, uh, was not just something that John had thought up. I mean, it was a common theme, uh, amongst the rabbis. These few quotes give a, a brief glimpse at what is a central theme in much of the rabbinic literature, that is, the fruit of repentance. In fact, the mark of a righteous person is that their life is marked by repentance, which is itself a paradox. How can you be righteous and always have to repent? I mean, you, you, you run up against this all the time in the rabbinic literature. The righteous repents daily. Well, if he has to repent daily, maybe he's not so righteous. But, but nonetheless, that, that is the sign of the righteous is that they're given to repentance. Yet these few quotes should be sufficient to indicate that the call to repentance was not foreign to the message of Judaism, nor even to the Judaism's extant in the days of Yeshua. John's message then rings in concert with what many of the teachers of his day were saying. And as we shall see, repentance was a core element of Yeshua's teaching as well. Though repentance was a familiar subject in the teachings of the sages, John's call for repentance emphasized an urgency since the kingdom of heaven was at hand. This, means, this word means to come near or is approaching, or is right at the door. In other words, you haven't got a lot of time. There's an urgency here. It's about to be established, and it was this eschatological dawning that energized the message of John. You, you understand, I'm going to be using the word eschatology. Eschaton means, is the Greek word meaning the last days, or the last times, the end of times, the end of days. Eschatology is that whole realm of this apocalyptic last days when God would make things right. And so John is saying, it's here. You know, you don't have much time left. You need to do it now. Don't wait. But what is meant by the kingdom of heaven? Malchut Shemayim in the Hebrew. First, the use of heaven, as often in the rabbinic literature, is a circumlocution for the ineffable name. That is, yod heh vav the four-letter name, uh, was not pronounced by the majority of, of Judaisms. There may have been some that tried to pronounce it, but they, but they were castigated as a result of it. Uh, it was not pronounced, and so there were substitutions. Usually, the, the substitution was Adonai, right? And uh, but heaven was also used. So we have uh, uh, in um, in a vote, it says the one who has the fear of heaven. It doesn't mean the f- the fear of the sky. It means the fear of God. Yes. Question. What the question is when they're saying when they're using the word heaven, either Uranas in the Greek or Shemayim in the Hebrew, are they visualizing what we were taught as uh, those who were brought up in the Christian church were taught? Well, what, I'm, I'm curious, what visualization did you have if you grew up in the church? What visualization of heaven did you have when you, when somebody said heaven? What 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 came into your mind? Yeah, lots of mansions, gold streets. Yeah. Green fields, streams, forever. Strawberry fields? No, no, just, just green fields. Okay. Uh, Rubens and diamonds. And, but, and, 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 and the location of this place was somewhere in the sky, in the clouds. Yeah. No, I doubt very seriously that the people of uh, the first century had that in mind when they heard the word Shemayim or when they heard uh, Uranus or whatever term. I, I think hardly that they may have. Some may have. Sure. Yeah. The question is, the question is, what were they thinking? Because speaking with uh, with Jewish people today, who at least are religious Jewish people, when you ask them about heaven and hell, it's like it's a it's on a blank screen. They don't. Uh, they, you know. the, the word heaven was a circumlocution for God. Shemayim uh, was the sky, but when it said the kingdom of heaven, it didn't mean the kingdom of the sky. It meant the kingdom of God. It was another way of saying God. So. When you have the kingdom of heaven, you can have the kingdom of heaven anywhere. But you can have the kingdom of God anywhere. It doesn't mean that it's up there. It isn't telling you the location of the kingdom. It's telling you the name of the king. As you would say the kingdom of David, or the kingdom of Solomon, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Or heaven is a substitution for yod heh vav heh because they didn't want to say, they didn't want to say the name. Okay, so, and you might, and I would even suggest, and we'll, in a few minutes here, Paul's, uh, Paul uses one time uh, the glorious heavenly kingdom. I think he has the same thing in mind. But uh, we can talk more about that. But the point is, is the kingdom of heaven, why is it used only in Matthew? Well, apparently Matthew, from everything that we can tell, is writing to a very Jewish audience. So he's using uh, the terminology that would fit this Jewish audience. He does use kingdom of God th- three or four places. 
But more, uh, 32 or 33 times he uses kingdom of heaven. One time is in dispute. And uh, he's the only one who does it. Nobody else even uses it. So uh, it's, it's particular to Matthew. Yes, uh, Larry. Well, t- uh, the question is, how does this tie into the I- idea of uh, the end of the Shema? That uh, if you do all these things, that he will give you a long life in the land like the days of the heaven upon the earth. Well, Again, heaven here is, t- is speaking of eternity, divinity, uh, deity, th- those kinds of things. In other words, the way it's supposed to be and uh, without end. So it's probably, it's probably talking in a bit of hyperbole there. So you'll, you'll live forever here. I mean, you'll, but the point is, is that from the beginning of the story until the end, if you read in the book of Revelation, what happens? The kingdom of heaven has become the kingdom of this world. There's no indication that everybody gets transported to some um, ethereal, you know, there's no airlift to, uh, to mansions in the sky. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorResource.com. He's in that place. He's in that place which is separate from the earth. Is it a location? The question was. Excuse me, I didn't repeat it for the tape. The question was, um, uh, what, what about our Father who is in heaven? This is a common rabbinic phrase, Avinu Bashamayim, our Father who is in heaven. Um, it means the Father who dwells in the heights. You have to remember, ancient man, even first century man, had no idea about the way space and everything is. Okay, so when they said heaven, they, you know, Mount Sinai had its top in the heavens. Okay, so when God came and dwelt upon Mount Sinai, uh, he, was, he was the one who came from heaven. But the idea, too, is that the, the, the heavens uh, are those high places, that is, not in the bad sense, but those places that are above us, unattainable by us. We could never get there. So God has to stoop down from his high, lofty place to see us. That's the imagery that, that gives this heaven as a location. Our Father who dwells uh, in, in the holy place apart from us is the idea of heaven. But they don't have a, they don't have a, uh, a planet surrounded by atmosphere in their mind when they're thinking that. It's in heaven, right. So in the same place, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the same way that where you dwell in, in your, where your glorious throne is, wherever that is, and you have all of these uh, beings attending you, and every one of you, nobody questions your authority there. Nobody questions. Nobody has to say, is there really a God? Uh, does he really do this? No. no. There's no question. Absolutely no question. So everything works exactly as he intends there. May your, your will be on earth the same way it is there. I want it to be the same way here. I, want every, I don't want anybody to question your existence. This is the sanctification of the name. In this prayer, that's our. That's why we're here, is to sanctify God's name upon the earth. Right, right. It's there. There's a. There's an issue. There's a difference between a tempor- temporality and eternality, but it's not nearly as marked in Hebrew thought as it is in Greek thought, because the what we have in this world melds into the world to come. Granted, there's a change, there's a recreation, and so forth, but it's not. It's not that much different. In other words, the uh, Garden of Eden. Is not that much different than now, except that what we have now has all kinds of troubles. We still have trees, we still have animals, we still have we eat, so forth and so on. So what they did in the Garden of Eden was was life as it should have been on the earth, and apparently that's where that's that's the hope is that's where it's going, life as it should be. But it isn't devoid of the earth. I mean, when God created the earth, He said it was good, so it must be okay. It doesn't it doesn't need to be destroyed, except for the fact that it's been tainted. So once it's recreated, that, that, that will be a material existence, which is good. 
um, which really is uh, is at the heart of the uh, a foundational issue between uh, an Eastern and a Western way of thinking. All right, uh, let's continue on. So my point in say, in all of that is to say the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. There's no substantive substantive difference. The idea that the dispensationalist said, well, kingdom of heaven means the kingdom uh, where where uh, God's uh, where the church will go, and the kingdom of God is his coming to earth that's for the jewish people um that that doesn't work the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of god is is one in the same and if you collate the gospels in the synoptics you'll see that the very same words where matthew has yeshua saying kingdom of heaven luke and mark have him saying kingdom of god not every time but all right the equivalent phrase kingdom of god is also used by matthew and so the two are uh, are essentially the same in short, the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God, the place and time in which his kingship is both established and received. It therefore was part of the apocalyptic message of the prophets who foresaw the regathering of Israel, the defeat of her enemies, her return to obedience to the Torah, the blessings that would come as a result not only upon the nation of Israel itself, but also upon all the nations. At the heart of the prophetic promise of God's rule at the end of days was the appearance of Messiah, who would bring God's redemption for his people and establish justice upon the earth. Now, can, can you, you know, when you stop to think about the kingdom of God, the well, first thing we define is the rule of God. Okay, the rule of God. But is there ever a time when God hasn't ruled? So how do you say the kingdom of God is coming, or the kingdom of God is close at hand? Well, as I, as I noted here just briefly, the kingdom of God is, is two things. It's not simply that God rules, but it's that there are those who accept his rule who long for it, who want it, who, who, who uh, gladly bow to his rule. You know, according to the scriptures, every knee will bow, right? But some are uh, going to bow uh, out of a heart of praise and others are going to be subjugated. But every knee will bow. The kingdom of God is seen where his blessings come upon his willing subjects. And that we haven't seen yet. The understatement of the... Millenniums is the one written by the writer of the Hebrews that he must sit until all things are subdued under his feet. And then it says, but we do not yet see all things subdued under his feet. Boy, isn't isn't that true? Uh, but there's coming a time. Okay, so on page 84. Are, are, is it okay if we do this? We have about uh, 15, 20 minutes left. Is that going to work? Okay. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a dominant theme throughout the Gospels. As noted above, Matthew alone uses both the designation kingdom of heaven, where the Greek word uranos uh, represents the common Hebrew circumlocution shemayim for the divine name, and the phrase kingdom of God. He uses them both. That the kingdom theme is dominant in the synoptics is evident from the repeated use of the term itself. And I've just broken it down for you. You can see, however, that John only uses it five times. The kingdom of God continues as a dominant theme in Luke's second volume, which is the book of Acts, where the opening verses refer to it, and the book concludes with the notice regarding Paul that he continued, quote, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Yeshua Messiah with all openness unhindered. And as we shall see, the core in the Gospels, the core element of the Gospel is the kingdom. When Yeshua tells his disciples to go preach the Gospel, he tells them, preach the Gospel of the kingdom. Now, that's an interesting uh, th thing to consider. What did they tell people? You know, when we, when we think of giving the gospel, what are the uh, uh, essential elements of the gospel as you've learned it? No, I mean, when, you, when you're talking to somebody at the, at the grocery store, a friend of yours, or across the, whatever, you have a friend that you've, you've had good friends with for a long time, and, and they, don't, they think that, you're, that religion is all a bunch of hooey. And eventually they become kind of interested, and they say, well, tell me. You know, tell me what it is. What is it that you believe? And now you have an opportunity to share with them the good news, the gospel. What do you share with them? What is the core elements? What do you say to them? Okay, Yeshua died for our sins. What else did he do? He rose from the dead, right? And why did he have to die for your sins? Okay, because the wages of sin is death. Yeah, okay. So apparently they weren't going about doing that, were they? Because this is before Yeshua died. Right? Then we're going around to people saying, I want you to know four important things. 
you know, or six important things or five important things, which included the death of Yeshua, the resurrection of Yeshua, so forth and so on. Apparently the gospel that they were saying was the gospel of the kingdom. Now, did it have all of those elements tied into it more than likely in, in, in some ways? But their message was not, it was the same but with different words. Yeah, can the, can the uh, uh, word kingdom be understood as authority? Absolutely. The rule of God, the authority of God, where you, where, where his subjects gladly say to him, whatever you ask, we will do. You know, we want to honor your, glor- your, your glorious throne, your kingship, your rule, your authority. So what were they going about saying in these early chapters of the Gospels? Repent. Repent from what? Well, from the, from hypocrisy, from disobedience, from an unwillingness to uh, follow God as you know you should, and so forth and so on. But it still had the same elements of the gospel, meaning what? You have, you're, you have sin in your life. You need to do something significant about that sin. And I would, I would venture to say that what they did still had all of the signposts pointing to one who was coming. Now, eventually, Yeshua identified himself as that one who was coming. Even though the apostles, uh, the disciples weren't all that hot on his having done that. You know, Peter tried to say, no, no, it can't be, it can't be you. Um, Larry. Yes, and John was saying, you know, he's soon to come. The, 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 the reality of all that we have heard in the prophets is dawning upon us. The difficulty is that that's 2,000 years ago. So should we still say the kingdom of heaven is close at hand? You see, I mean, that's the problem, right? I mean, that's the problem that the Jewish people have, have struggled with, uh, you know, ever since they, they were uh, almost annihilated by the Christians. Is that the Christians keep saying, unless you receive Jesus, you know, you don't get in. And, they keep, and, they, and the Christians keep saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And the, and the Jews say, wait a minute. When the Messiah comes, we're going to be on top, not on bottom. You know, the prophets say that all of the nations that come up against Jerusalem are going to be uh, defeated, that God is going to destroy the nations and he's going to exalt Israel and he's going, to, he's going to plant her in her land and she's going to have peace that will never be disrupted. And so when the Christians come and say, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, the Jews say, wait a minute. No, when the Messiah comes, we're not supposed to, ha- we're not supposed to be treated this way, according to the prophets. He's coming for our deliverance. He's coming for our salvation. And when Yeshua came and lived and died and, and Rome was still oppressing, they said he could not have been the Messiah. Now, the same problem obtains with, uh, with our Lubavitch friends because there's some Lubavitch who still think that Rabbi Menachem Schneerson is the Messiah. The problem is, is he's dead now and he hasn't brought world peace. He hasn't brought, he hasn't brought those things. And some of them are still proclaiming him the Messiah, and it's causing all kinds of grief amongst some of the Lubavitch because they say, you're doing the same thing the Christians do. You have a, you have a Messiah that died and didn't do what he was supposed to do. And you know what they're saying? Well, that, that's all right. The prophet said he would die, and that when he comes back, he'll do all that. <laughs> and there's a lot of, well, I would say a lot, but there's, there's, some, there's some Jewish uh, teachers who are very, very, very upset at that and say, that's, that's, that is a new Judaism. We have never believed that. So... The idea, the idea that uh, the Messiah w- could come and die and have to return to complete his work. Well, many questions that we have. When we start asking the simple questions like, what does that mean? When we read the Bible, it's not nearly as, as easy to, to understand sometimes as we might think. All right. Besides uh, using the, the actual term kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, kingdom of the Lord, or his kingdom, there are other contexts which surely talk about the reign of God. And so this is a theme throughout the Gospels. This dominant theme of the reign and rule of God among the affairs of mankind is based upon the prophetic message in the Tanakh. It was not a new teaching brought by our master and his apostles, but was spoken of by Israel's prophets and anticipated throughout the generations of Israel. The nation of Israel was viewed as a kingdom of priests and thus a nation set apart to God. Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom has to have a king. In Exodus, who was their king? Well, God was their king. When God established the throne of a reigning king, beginning with Saul, the fact is clearly established that he intended Israel's kingdom to be eternal. Samuel informed Saul that had he obeyed the commandments of God, quote, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It is this aspect of an enduring, unending kingdom that formed the eschatological expectations of the prophets. In the promise made to David, God foretells that David's son Solomon, Shlomo, would build the temple and that he would establish, quote, the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Indeed, in the Davidic covenant, God says of David, your house, we should understand that to be dynasty, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This Davidic promise is thus the foundation for the eschatological expectation of the prophets who anticipated and spoke of the establishment of Israel's kingdom at the end of days in which Israel would be planted forever in the land, would never again be disrupted by the nations. Such a reality would be the result of Israel's return to the Lord and her full obedience to his commandments. But the kingdom's establishment would be the work of the promised one, the ultimate Davidic king, that is, Messiah. He would bring Israel to repentance, regather her from exile, and rule over her as the final and eternally righteous king. As Isaiah says after he gives the prophecy of uh, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, El Gibor, so forth and so on. Then in the next verse we read, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So when the Messiah comes, he will set up the, the throne of David. It will never again be taken away. There will be eternal peace and uh, it will be the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. Likewise, it was the promise of a future Davidic kingdom that became the foundation for the apocalyptic message of the later prophets in which the Messiah would wage war against the nations that had come up against Israel, defeating them and establishing Israel's dominance forever. So when we come to the apocalyptic books like Daniel, uh, we read, for instance, in Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So there you have warfare. God's kingdom crushes all the others. You know, it's, uh, it's Star Wars to the max, to the, you know, on, on steroids. In Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, the Messianic ruler be, uh, comes from heaven and establishes his eternal kingdom upon the earth. We read, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, we have a, I mean, I'm doing a very uh, very quick survey here, but if you read the Tanakh with the idea of what is this kingdom in mind, you have it from the beginning to the end. God chooses a people. He wants to establish her as his kingdom upon the earth. He chooses his king. He subdues the nations. He causes her to ride on the heights and so forth and so on. Of course, why didn't that happen? Because she rejected him. She accepted the covenants of foreign gods. But he said, I'm going to deal with that issue too. I'm going to put my Torah in her heart and then she will follow me. It is upon this background of the prophetic notice of the eschatological kingdom and reign of Messiah that John's words take meaning. Obviously, he does not explain what he means by kingdom of heaven, nor would he have needed to, since those who heard his words would have been very familiar with the concept. The pseudepigrapha, which were things that were being written at this time and before, uh, is replete with references to the kingdom of God in similar terms. I give you some references. Likewise, the Targumim, the Jewish translations of the Tanakh into Aramaic, use the term or the, use the phrase kingdom of God to describe the rule or reign of God, even where it's not explicitly stated in the Hebrew. Moreover, the rabbinic literature refers to the kingdom in a number of ways, indicating that the concept is well in place in the first century. In the halakha of reciting the Shema, for instance, the question is posed as to why the Shema precedes the command of the blessings. Uh, remember, it says... Uh, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Then it says, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Why didn't he put that first? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Then say, Hear, O Israel. Well, that's a question that the sages are asking. The answer comes, So that one may first accept upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, and afterwards may accept the yoke of the commandments. So in other words, what is the yoke of the kingdom of heaven? Confessing that God is your God, he is your king. That's your first thing. Then you say, okay, even if you have never heard him speak, 
You say, you're my king, whatever you say I'll do. Then you say, no, what do you want me to do? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Teach them to your children, talk of them, so forth. So the first thing you do is you submit to the kingship of God, that which would be called the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it interesting that Yeshua used the same phraseology? What did he say? Take my yoke upon you, right? And learn from me. Do you think that in saying, using that term, he is equating himself with the yoke of the kingdom of heaven? I think he may well be. I'm, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pound the podium about it, but I think it's possible. In the same context, we learn that Rabbi Gamliel recited the Shema on his wedding night. Even though the sages had ruled that a bridegroom was exempt from the command to recite the Shema until after the first night. In other words, okay, you got married. Now you're on your way to your wedding night with your bride. Do you really think you can concentrate? You can have kavanah in your prayers? No, of course not. So you're exempt. You don't have to do it. According to the rabbis. Strict, strict rabbinic kind of a thing. Um, Rabbi Gamliel, but he recited it the first night nonetheless, and here was his reason. I cannot heed you to suspend from myself the kingdom of heaven even for one hour. In other words, nothing in my life takes precedence over the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, so dominant was the kingdom theme in the rabbinic mind that the phrase, blessed is the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever, was appended to the reciting of the opening phrase of the Shema, though to be said in a whisper or silently, lest it be construed as equal with scripture. So, you see, the rabbis put that in there. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Leolam Va'ed. That's not in the Shema, that blessed is the name of the glorious kingdom. They put that in there. Why? What does that tell you about the rabbinic view of looking at the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is seen when you confess God to be king and the only king and when you do his commandments. You want to see the kingdom of God? You will see a people saying there's only one God and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and you'll see them living according to his commandments. When you see that, that's the kingdom of heaven. So no wonder that when the Jewish people began to see the emerging Christian church of the second and third centuries, basically disregarding the Torah, they said, that certainly cannot be the kingdom of heaven, even though they say it is. How can you say it's the kingdom of heaven when you disregard the rules of heaven? I mean, it's pretty simple when you stop to think about it. According to uh, Babylonian Talmud, Berchot 15a, Rabbi Yochanan also said, if one desires to accept upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven in the most complete manner, he should consult nature, which was their euphemism, and wash his hands, and put on tefillin, and recite the Shema, and say the tefillah. This is the complete acknowledgement of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you go through, if you go through the normal rituals of the day, but what is always at your, on your mind and your heart are those things which take you to God. This is, this is an acknowledgement of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the establishment of the kingdom of heaven in the rabbinic mind is seen in the obedience of his people to the ways of Torah. But the return uh, of Israel to Torah obedience, though it begins with each individual, still was considered eschatological by the rabbis. The future reign of the Messiah would result in the subjugation of Israel's enemies, her return to the land, and thus a return to righteous living. The Midrash on Song of Songs ties this together with the appearance of the Messiah. And I, I was jumping for, uh, for joy when I found this. Uh, this. This just kind of brings it all together from uh, Midrash uh, Song of Songs. Commenting on the phrase, the rain is over and gone, chapter 2, verse 11. This refers to the subject, uh, subjection of Israel. The flowers appear on the earth. The conquerors have appeared on the earth. Who are they? Rabbi Berkaya said in the name of Rabbi Itzhak, as it is written, and the Lord showed me four cra- uh, craftsmen, Zechariah 2, 3, namely Eliyahu, the Messiah, Melchizedek, and the war Messiah. Interesting. The time of the zamir, or pruning, is come. The time has come for Israel to be delivered. The time has come for, un, for uncircumcision to be cut off. That's a real play on words. The time has come for the kingdom of the Kuthians to expire. The time has come for the kingdom of heaven to be revealed, as it, is, as it says, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And then one more phrase from the Song of Songs, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Who is this? This is the voice of the Mashiach. So for, 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 for Israel, as they, for the sages, as they read, as they read the song of, uh, song of Songs, they said, this love, this love story is really all about the coming kingdom that the Messiah is going to bring. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls had new, have numerous uh, references to the same thing. I'll, I'll skip by that. You can read it in the Rule of the Community. So we see by these few examples that the concept of God's reign upon the earth by the hand of his Messiah was well in place during the first century and that therefore John's use of the phrase kingdom of heaven needed no explanation. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven was understood to be the rule of God upon the earth by his Messiah by which wickedness is abolished, the right and righteousness prevails. Since the prevailing rabbinic viewpoint of the first century was that only Israel was righteous, by extension, the establishment of righteousness upon the earth also meant the establishment of Israel over her enemies. Yet when we consider the kingdom of heaven and the teachings of Yeshua and his apostles, we are immediately confronted with a tension, at least one, one that has been the focus of an exorbitant amount of scholarly labors in the past century. This tension is apparent when the kingdom passages are examined and may be simply stated as a question. Is the kingdom of God present in the coming of Yeshua, or is it yet future? If the rule of God among men means that wickedness has been abolished, then how is it possible to say that the kingdom of God has come in light of the fact that wickedness remains? The explanations offered by scholars to this apparent dilemma may be grouped in four. The first one is that when Yeshua came, and I'll just kind of summarize these, um, the explanations offered are these. First of all, that Yeshua turned the concept of the kingdom of heaven from one of territorial dimensions to that of ethics. In other words, the rule of God would be seen not by conquering Israel's enemies, it should say, and placing her uh, as the dominant peoples of the earth, but as an ethical reality in which the kingdom of God would be seen in the righteous behavior of those who submitted to his rule. Thus, the kingdom of God is seen as the organization of... Re uh, of redeemed humanity whose actions are inspired by love. Thus, the expectations of the Jewish people that the kingdom of God would result in victory over their enemies was replaced by Yeshua as the kingdom of God that ruled in the hearts of men. This non-eschatological explanation of the kingdom, which was uh, German in its uh, inception, became a dominant force in the social gospel movement at the turn of the 20th century. For the kingdom of God was not something uh, was not to await the return of Yeshua to rule and reign, but was already extant in the reality of the gospel. The kingdom would thus be realized by the reformation of, of society into one people. So this, this fueled the liberal movement of which was known as the social gospel. In other words, the first explanation was, look, when, you, when Yeshua talked about the kingdom of God, he wasn't talking anything about what the prophet said. He brought a whole new message. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with this earth and with this or the people group or, or with warring or anything like that. It has to do with just your individual heart. The kingdom of God is in your heart. That's it. And the kingdom of God is seen when we love our neighbors. The kingdom of God is seen when we don't steal from our neighbors. Those kinds of things. So the social gospel became the, uh, the way to, to realize the kingdom of God. Secondly, in opposition to this non-eschatological view was that of vice... Uh, which was Reichel's uh, son-in-law who gave the first explanation. He reacted strongly against this. It was followed by Albert Schweitzer, uh, who read the message of Yeshua as thoroughly eschatological, understanding his words to mean that he expected the end to come during the mission of the Twelve. In other words, these scholars said, now when we read the Gospels, it sounds to us like this is what Yeshua is saying. He sends out at the Twelve and he says, look, go preach the Gospel of the Kingdom with the idea that when you do, it's all going to, it's It's here. It's all going to happen. But it didn't. When Yeshua realized that he was mistaken, he decided to cast himself headlong to death in a final heroic attempt to force God to set up his kingdom. The impact of Schweitzer may be seen in that his interpretation of the historical Yeshua became the dominant position among German scholarship in the early 20th century. If you hear, if you hear about the third wave, okay, well, the first wave was Schweitzer. He was the one, that, the quest for the historical Jesus. The second wave was sometime later where they began to well sometime later where they tried to uh, bring it more back into a historical rather than a philosophical religious the third wave is what's happened recently which is called Jesus seminar the Jesus seminar is a third wave of quest for historical Jesus and in all of these it has become according to the scholars more and more evident that there's no such thing as a historical Jesus <laughs> you know everything that we know about him not everything but most everything that we know about him we really don't know about him that's where modern scholarship is today about Yeshua. So they would say, kingdom of heaven, eh, well, you know, he brought it, but it didn't work. You know, his, his idea of the kingdom of heaven didn't work. 
In reaction to Weiss and those who followed him, uh, Boltman and others, I'm trying to kind of summarize here. Boltman and others who, who also considered that Yeshua was mistaken about the realization of the kingdom in his lifetime, taught that the kingdom was superhistorical, that is, existing out of the confines of earth's history. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is literally the kingdom in heaven. It's up there. It can only become here in, in, in an individual way. It can never, it can never come here in a, in a wide sense. So the kingdom of heaven exists at the point of decision when mankind is confronted with the divine and with the need to accept uh, what is righteous and shun the evil. In this way, Yeshua became, uh, came as the supreme example, and redemption comes from following his example. So now we have the liberal uh, that Yeshua is, he, he redeems us by being an example to us. So it's the example theory of redemption. I mean, Boltzmann was the kind, he, he basically said, look, you know, and I'm using his terminology, Christmas never occurred. That's all a myth. That never happened. Somebody by the name of Jesus or Yeshua was never born in Bethlehem. That was all made up. But it was a good myth. Look what it's done. It's caused all kinds of people to have goodwill towards others. And it's caused, it's, it's, you know, you build hospitals out of, out of Christ, Christianity. It's built hospitals and helped orphans and done all kinds of things, given food to the poor. It's, it's a good myth. Let's keep it. In other words, the kingdom of God is, is the kind of thing that is up there, but it comes down to us through the examples of, of key people. And, and the myth of Yeshua was one of those. Another view was that the kingdom of God is the person of Yeshua. When he says the kingdom of God has come, he means I've come. That's another view. And I'm not going to get finished with this tonight, am I? Um, I'll, I'll just go to the next page where we have a kingdom of God in Matthew. In reacting to these various interpretations of the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God in the Gospels, evangelicals and neo-evangelicals. Do you know what I mean by neo-evangelicals? That, that's another way of saying new evangelicals. Well, evangelicals don't think neo-evangelicals are evangelicals. So, but we'll... we'll we won't, we won't stop on that. Evangelicals and neo-evangelicals recognized some measure of truth in most of all of these theories. It is clear, as we shall see, that Yeshua proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom. Yet it is equally clear that he also taught its future reality. This led scholars like Kumul and Jeremiah and Ladd to suggest that the appearance of Yeshua in his first coming brought both the reality of the kingdom as well as the means for its future fullness in the eschatological reign, whether of the millennium or of the eternal state. In the words of Jeremiah, the kingdom of God is, quote, an eschatology in process of realization. This view, which is utilizing uh, Ladd's terminology, has been labeled as realized eschatology. It incorporates the idea of already, not yet, in terms of how the kingdom of heaven or God is manifest. This is more than simply saying that, that, that we have a foretaste of the future and full kingdom. The idea of already, not yet, is that the kingdom if fully, is fully manifest in the lives of believers today, but awaits its fullness in the future. It's qualitatively extant now, but in quantitative terms will be fully realized in the end of days. So it's not the idea of realized eschatology or realized kingdom of God. Say, okay, I look out at the world and I say, it's definitely not the kingdom of God. Okay, But can you see, to some extent, the kingdom of God in your own life? Can you see it in your own home? Can you see it in your own community? Man, not perfectly. But do you see the rule of God there? Do you see people saying yes to God in some very difficult situations? And throughout the history of, you know, of belief, we've seen that. Right? We've seen people willing to give up their lives for what they believed was true with regard to God. All right, well, that's the rule of God. So in terms of the, quanti- uh, in, in terms of the quality, it's here. It is real. It's not just that we get just a little, you know, it's not like the little scoop that you get at 31 flavors, you know. No, you get a whole cone, all right? It's just that you don't see, you don't see everybody with a whole cone. We actually do participate right now in the kingdom of God. This is what the, the final view is saying. And, and, uh, but we long for a time when, when we will be in a society where everyone does that. And that's still future. So we'll discuss that more, uh, more in depth uh, when, we, when we pick up uh, next week. Uh, question, Joan. Uh, the question is, is it different th- uh, than before the Messiah came? Y- in a sense, yes. In a sense, it's... Um, if I can use this analogy, it's like a an almond tree. Okay, you plant the almond tree, you see, it, you watch it grow, it grows, so forth and so on. You still haven't gotten any almonds off this. Okay, but there, but then the spring comes after it's mature and things are right, and the spring comes and you see the buds and you say, 
the almonds are coming. And then eventually the almonds come and you get to taste. Now, before that, you anticipated it. You looked forward to it. You knew it was going to happen. You looked at it and you, can we say, you believed that you were going to get all almonds. You lived in that reality. But now the almonds have actually come. There is a significance to the, to, to the event of Yeshua's coming. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It was that to which the prophets uh, spoke. It was that which Abraham longed for. It was that that they believed in. And his actual coming isn't a significant event, which brings about the kingdom in a way that it could not have, have come about before. Yeah, I, I think they had a foretaste of the kingdom. Oh, um, no, absolutely. They had true faith in Yeshua. They had true faith in God. Their sins were forgiven. They had a foretaste of that. But the coming of Yeshua established without any doubt whatsoever the reality of the kingdom, that the kingdom was established, is established, and will be established. And it was made absolutely clear by his coming and by his death and by his resurrection. That is a decisive event in the scope of human history. And, uh, you know, blessed are those who have who have seen these things, right? So... Uh, they looked forward to it. We look back at it. Our faith is not that much different, except for the fact that the tree has now fully bloomed. <laughs> and, we're, and we're closer to the time when the harvest will be brought in. Any other questions? Yeah, Larry. Uh, the question is, uh, it, there seemed to have been a difficulty to reconcile what the prophets spoke of in terms of a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. That's, that's correct. And so there were some rabbis, some sages who taught that there would be two messiahs, Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. And since Joseph was the suffering one in Egypt, he's the suffering messiah and David is the reigning king. Um, is, do we have the idea in that quote from the, from the Midrash that we have the war messiah? Yeah, probably so. But this is the conquering messiah. What was the first messiah? Is he the suffering one, perhaps? Um, you know, it was difficult for the rabbis to see that they were the same person. Um, but this was the message that came, to, you know, given to us by Isaiah. He not only dies, but he, but he sees light, right? After he dies, he sees light, and so forth and so on. So he he establishes the descendants that he that he uh, justifies, and so it, it was clearly there if their eyes were open to see it, and that was the issue. Okay, so I was hoping to give you the whole kingdom of God in one shot. So now you, you need to go home and read this and then come back. You know, if you went home and read these next, uh, what, two and a half pages and you could come back and say, I really have these questions, that would be great. We could have a great class next week, you know, if you digest it. But, but I want to I leave you with this. The kingdom of God ought to be a central theme in our lives as well. And I think oftentimes it's not, in, 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 at least in general Christian circles. I'm not saying... I'm not ta- talking about any given individual or, or individual group, but I'm talking in general Christian circles. Kingdom of God, I don't think, is a dominant theme. Because in the kingdom of, it, well, kingdom of God, in that theme, there's a king and you're a subject. He has commandments and, and he has directives and you're to do them. And you're to do them with, with joy and with happiness as serving the king of kings, right? It's not Burger King. You can have it your way. It's, you know, it's, it, it's his way. And so... That, that ought to be a dominant theme for us. I mean, it ought to be a joyful theme. You know, when we, that's one of the wonderful things about doing prayers, doing the prayers out of the Siddur. The Siddur constantly reminds us about his kingship. It's not just that, well, he's king and I have to do everything he says. He's also king and he's very powerful, which means he can protect, which means he can provide, <laughs> you know, which means we're on the right side. We're in, you know, and, and we have a great king. And that whole idea of kingship is, is very dominant in the uh, prayers of the sages, and rightly so, because we are subjects of a king, and it is our duty and our privilege to sanctify his name, to let everybody know what a wonderful king he really is. That's what we're, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 